All right, so Hebrews chapter 6, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we are now finishing up chapter 6. Last week uh, was a bit long, we'll be a little bit shorter this week. There was a lot to explain last week, and of course, as, you're walk, as you walk through a book, uh, a book of the Bible like this, you have to recognize, we all have to recognize that it flows purposefully together, and so you can't just segment you know, one piece and then one piece and then one piece, you have to understand that it all flows together. And so what we talked about last week, especially verses 9 through 12, have great bearing on our verses this morning in chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And then we'll see at the end that verse 20 flows right into chapter 7. So um, if you would, we're going to read, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 20, but we'll mainly talk about verses 13 through 20. As we begin this morning. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So as we look through our verses this morning, the main idea that I want to throw out here that we see clearly is that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope, and He's our only hope in this life and in the life to come. Jesus is our only hope. So as we look at verse 13 and begin our trek through our text this morning, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... So when did God make a promise to Abraham? Of course, this is a book to Hebrews. So it's a book, it's a book to Jews. It's a book to people who have known God through his word, through his prophets, through his people in the Old Testament. And one of his first people, his first as he sort of made his people, was Abraham. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And Genesis 12 is the 12th chapter in the Bible. And from Genesis chapter 12, we have seen clearly for us, put clearly for us, how God made a promise to make a nation, to make a people, to do something particular through a particular group of people. And he did this starting with one man, as we see him here in Genesis 12, as he's called at this point, Abram, before God changes his name to Abraham later on in a few chapters. So Genesis chapter 12, read with me verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
And this is random, by the way. Uh, I mean, seemingly random. I, there hasn't been much leading up to this point in Genesis that says God's going to do something. Some of the genealogies you have in chapter 11 basically trace you to where you get to Abram. So from the beginning of time up until Abram, God, you've seen all of these interesting things happen. And then all of a sudden, God's promise begins. And God chooses Abram. Why does he choose Abram? It doesn't say. It just says God started talking to Abram and said, Abram, I choose you. All right, so this is what we get. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the initial promise that God gives to Abram so that he will make a people who are meant to be God's people who are meant to follow after God, who are meant to display in this world the character, the nature, the purposes of God. And the character and the nature and the purposes of God sometimes seem random because God chose Abram, not because there was something special about Abram, but simply because God in his mercy did something for a particular people and he started that through this man. Sometimes God's ways are hard to figure out. Sometimes, as we think about the fact that Jesus, as Christians, Jesus is our only hope, it's difficult sometimes because we can't understand why certain things happen in the way that they do. Why does tragedy strike at such an inopportune time as it did this week in our community? Why do bad things happen all the time all around the world? Why do good people suffer? So many questions that we can have in our mind and in our hearts that we just can't figure these things out. And sometimes God's purposes aren't meant for us to know, but some of them are. And clearly in Genesis chapter 12, God makes clear that he is going to bless Abram and Abram's offspring so that they will be a blessing to the whole world. God wants to display himself through his people so that God will be worshipped and honored rightly. And so he has made this purpose clear. He has made a promise to Abram here starting in Genesis chapter 12. But that's not the promise particularly that's given to us in Hebrews chapter 6. It is one, though, that as we look and get to Genesis chapter 22, where we have our Hebrews 6 promise and oath, where we will get to. But look at chapter 13 and verse 16 there in Genesis. Because this isn't just a one time, God said this once, and then all of a sudden, you know, Abram's supposed to believe him for the rest of his life. But no, God is diligent to continue to pursue his people and to make sure that they understand that he is with them and he is for them. And so continually, we see this over and over again. We'll look at chapter 13, verse 16. God says, to Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. All right, and then look at chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. Genesis 15, verses 3 through 6. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram at this point, years have passed, and Abram has trusted God to this point, but Abram says... Well, you said you were going to give me offspring, but I don't have any offspring yet. You said I was going to have an heir, but my heir currently is just my servant. He's not from my body. He's not from my blood. 
he, he's not really my offspring and my heir. He's just going to take over my possessions because I don't have anyone else to give them to. And so Abram's thinking, God, you know, when is this going to happen? And God speaks to him, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We see this in Romans where Paul states this verse and says, Abram believed God. You can read verse 3 and you can say, Abram didn't believe God or Abram had a moment of doubt. Maybe Abram was just trying to figure out what God's plans were. He didn't know exactly how it was going to pan out. And he was looking for some answers. Because that's what we all do as humans, right? I mean, we want answers. Why is this happening? Why hasn't this happened yet? Why, why did this thing happen when I don't think it should have? But God stayed patient toward Abram because I think Abram showed that he was patient toward God. And Abram listened to God and he believed him. And it was counted to Abram as righteousness because he trusted God. He waited patiently. But still, at this point in Genesis 15, Abram still doesn't have an heir. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 4 through 7. Where again we have God clearly saying, I'm still with you, I'm still for you. End of verse 3, and God said to him, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, this is interesting because Isaac's not yet born. His own son is not yet born. And God says, the offspring that you have, I'm going to make them into many nations. I mean, he didn't even have them yet. And he's saying, I'm already doing this. I already have this plan in place. Continue to trust me. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God cares about making it clear to his people who he is and what his purposes are. There are certain things that we can know clearly about God. There are places wherein we can put our hope and certain promises of God that He makes fully clear to us through His Word. To Abram, at this point, God is speaking directly to him. We have not just these first 17 chapters, but we have all of God's Word in front of us now, in 2019, to know exactly what He has done throughout all of history and leading up to the person and work of Jesus Christ to know that God has in fact, indeed, fulfilled all of His promises in Jesus Christ and that we can look to Him for our hope. But still, still in Genesis 17, Abram still doesn't actually have a son. But later on in, in chapter 17, we see that Isaac is promised and that Isaac is later born in, in chapter 21. Isaac is finally born. The, the heir, who the promise is going to go through, is finally born. 
the beginning of the promise is clearly seen for Abram and for Sarah. But then God does something strange, seemingly strange to us. In chapter 22, read verse 1 of Genesis 22. It says, after these things, after Isaac is finally born, after all this time has passed, when Abram's 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old, and they finally have Isaac, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So this is a test. God is testing Abram. And he says, look, do you trust that I'm going to fulfill the promises that I have made to you? And he tests him. And he says, this, for any logical human being, is going to seem like this isn't going to work. You have promised to give me an heir, and you've promised that that heir is going to be Isaac. And then you ask me to kill him. It doesn't make any sense. How is this possible? But you see, Abram just obey. And so Abram obeys. Pick it up in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, you can't get much closer, right? I mean, you know, get to the point, you said all the stuff, you get all of it ready, and then, all right, well, well how are we going to do this? Well, we have to have an instrument. Well, here's this knife. So he pulls it out. I mean, it's all set before him to accomplish the task that God had put for him. And Abraham was ready and willing to do that. But verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and this is where we get our, our oath, our swearing, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived there. Abraham trusted God. Abraham wasn't righteous because he obeyed God. Abraham was righteous because he believed God, and his belief led him to act in that manner. His belief led him to obedience. 
And so we see clearly that God, in His test, was willing to finally and fully and surely confirm His promise to Abraham. And He did that. He tested Abraham. He gave him every reason to doubt. I mean, what more reason could you have to doubt than to say, Hey, Abram, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to... I'm going to make all of the nations on the earth blessed through you and your offspring. But then he doesn't give him offspring. And then years pass and he still doesn't give him offspring. And then Abram says, well, I don't have any offspring. And God says, trust me, you're going to have offspring. And then there's still no offspring. And then finally there is offspring. And then God says, all right, give him up. He's mine. And Abram, Abram still believes God. He believes that God's promise that he has already made to him over and over and over again is going to come to pass. And God says, not only am I going to promise this to you, but I'm going to swear it. And so as we look back at Hebrews chapter 6 and our text in verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now one thing I want us to to see is that Abraham obtained the promise in his own time, but there was still a continuation, a full fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham that Abraham did not yet see. But as the author of Hebrews says it, Having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. Abraham saw everything he needed to see. He heard everything he needed to hear to know that God was truly God and that he was trustworthy, that he was faithful, that he could be dependent on. Even in the midst of asking him to give up the one thing that was most precious to him. And God said, because you did this, I know. I know that you Trust me. I I know that you believe me. You're acting like it. And I will undoubtedly fulfill this promise through your offspring. Abraham had to be patient. And he inherited the beginning of the promise that God would make through him and through his offspring. And what's interesting is that God didn't just promise it, but that He swore it. Verse 16 in our text, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Now, I like watching movies. And oftentimes in movies, you'll have two people trying to make some sort of agreement. And you usually have some level of distrust and saying, how do I know that you're going to fulfill your end of the bargain? And so a person, you know, swears. I swear, I swear I'm going to do this. And they're like, well, I need you to swear by something. I I need you to swear by someone that's living or someone that's dead, right? And usually you often hear, I mean, anyone, am I the only one who watches these movies? No, where there's this swearing that happens. You know, I swear on my mother's grave, you know, that, that sort of language, you know, that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that, that, that's the sort of thing he's talking about. Pe- people swear, and they swear by something that's greater than them. They swear by something that's more important to them than their own selves. 
But God had no one greater, had nothing greater to swear by than himself because there is no one greater, there is nothing greater than God himself. And so God, to make it sure, to make it clear to Abraham and to the rest of the people who would follow in Abraham's line that he was going to fulfill this promise. He swore by himself. And so not only did he promise, but he swore it. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before. So he turns, this author of Hebrews, he turns and he says, look, God confirmed this. It's impossible for him to lie. Titus 1-2. Titus 1-2 is, you know, basically says that. Flip back a few pages if you want to. I'll read it to you if I ever get there. Titus, I'll read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God promised these things a long time ago. And he doesn't lie. Numbers, even in the Old Testament, Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is not like us. God will do what he says he will do. And if he wants to make it explicitly clear as he did with Abram with Abraham he says I swear on me because there's nothing greater there's nothing better that I will do this and so then the author of Hebrews turns to us the readers and he says we who have fled for refuge we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope Set before us. What does it mean for us to have fled for refuge? How can we be God's children if we have not clearly seen that we need refuge? We need refuge because we have within us sin. We have all around us sin. We have doubt and fear and anxiety and discouragement all around us and inside of us. Naturally, this is who we are as people. And so we recognize that we need someone, we need something that we can run to for refuge, for help. And so as Christians, the basic information of the gospel is that we have recognized that God is perfect and that we are not, that there is sin in our hearts and sin in this world that we can't do anything about. And if you're not sure that we can't do anything about it, just read the Old Testament where it's clear time and time again that it doesn't matter what God's promises are, His people will be unfaithful. Even Abraham at certain points was unfaithful. Overall, his life was faithful and he believed God time and time again. But there still were moments when Abraham didn't believe God. And there are moments when we 
don't believe God, when we don't think that he has our best in mind, when we think that we can trust in ourselves for our own refuge, but God has made a way, he has made a particular way for us to have full and final refuge. And we can experience that here and now in this life and in the life to come. And that hope is Jesus Christ. We flee for refuge to Christ. Our hope is Christ. If we flee to anything else, then we are fleeing to things that won't last. We are fleeing to things that will fade away. We are fleeing to things that, won't, that will not hold up now or in the end. And so the basic message of the gospel is that we have seen God's perfection and then we have seen our sin in comparison to that. And we know that we've fallen short and we know that we need something and someone to do something about that sin that is in us and around us. And Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty that we deserved for sinning and to do something about that sin. And he did that on the cross for us. And he was raised from the dead to show that he had the power to do that, to accomplish that. And he offers us now life. He offers us now eternal life, life that we can experience now in this life and life that we will fully understand and know and perfectly see when we go to the next life. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, is what he continues to say. In the midst of all this despair that we can have, because there is so much that we see before us, there is so much else in this world to distract us. We have to hold fast to the hope that's set before us, because we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who has entered into the inner place behind the curtain? It was Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I think I mentioned it last week even again. When Jesus died on the cross, what's so interesting is if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, as soon as Jesus dies on the cross, it's immediately told to Matthew's audience that then the veil of the... the what, is, what am I trying to say here? Yeah, the veil of the curtain was torn being lost, sorry. This happens sometimes. The veil was torn in two. As soon as Jesus died, what separated God from everyone else, what only one person, the great high priest, or the high priest, excuse me, the high priest could only enter once a year, that was taken down. That dividing wall was taken down so that we could now have access to the Father constantly through Christ. I mean, as soon as Jesus died, it's told to us that that curtain was torn in two completely from top to bottom. It wasn't a small curtain. This wasn't, you know, those guys, you ever see those, the power team where they had, you know, the phone books back in the day, like in the 90s, and they had those phone books and they would just rip them in half, you know, with their brute strength. I have no idea how they did that. I can't even tear a page, uh, much less 500 pages of a phone book. But, I mean, you're talking about like a million times, a million phone books was torn in two from top to bottom. I think that thing was tall. That thing was thick. And it just happened to tear. But it not just happened to, it was clearly planned by God to show us that this dividing wall was no longer there, that we could have access through Christ to God, and that we can flee to God for our refuge, that we can know for sure that He cares for us, and that we now have in heaven, at God's right hand, as we looked at in Hebrews chapter 1, at God's right hand, 
sitting for us, an advocate to the Father who is there saying, I know this guy. I know him. I'm pleading for him. I'm, I'm, I'm there for him. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, it's not that I just, I was there for him. It's that I am here for him now, and I will continue to be there for him. He is there. He has been raised eternally from the dead to show us that we can trust him. He is a sure and steadfast anchor, one that is never going to go away. I mean, that's the imagery, right? I mean, that's what an anchor is supposed to do. It's supposed to hold strong. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we saw another sort of nautical illustration. Hebrews 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I mean, what's the opposite of having an anchor that holds you steady and firm? It's drifting away. Because if you don't have an anchor, if you don't have something to hold you down, you are going to drift away. And what is our sure and steady anchor? It is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can. There is nothing else in this world that you can depend on and that you can trust. I wish that you could depend on and trust me with your whole life. Unfortunately, I'm human and I'm frail. And sometimes, oftentimes, more than I'd like to, I'm going to sin and I'm going to look out for yours truly. I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to do that. And, and I hope that you can trust me. I hope that you can trust one another. That's what we're doing here as a church. We're, we're being connected in Christ together so that we can trust one another. We can build relationships with one another. But our trust and hope is not fully in each other. Our hope and trust is in Christ who is in each of us. Our hope is in Him who is a sure and steady anchor in the midst of the things that happen in this world that we have no answers for. When tragedy strikes, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when we're supposed to be celebrating and all of a sudden we're left in despair and in seeming hopelessness, Christ still stands there. Christ is still seated at the right hand of the Father, having said, it is finished. I have done all that I have needed to do. And I am here. And I'm not going anywhere. And so that's, that's who we want to be for each other. But we can't be that fully for each other. We want to be able to depend on one another. And we can in certain capacities. But if, we, if all that we do as a church is say, trust me, then we have missed out on the purpose for which we exist. Yes, trust me, but trust Christ. You can trust me because I trust Christ, not because I'm a trustworthy guy in and of myself, but only because I have Christ. And it's so much so, much so that I have given my life to Him and that I continue to seek after Him and that I pray that you would look at my life and help me to know the ways in which I fall short, ways in which I am trusting in myself. And that's what we do for one another. We say, you can do this, not because you have the strength and the power in and of yourself, but because we have Christ. Because we have Christ. You can't do this on your own, but you can do it because Christ. You have Christ. I have Christ. That's the only reason we can get through any of the stuff that is before us, any of the stuff that we face, the sin that constantly comes up in our own hearts, the guilt and the shame that we have coming from within us and also that's put on us for all the wrong things, for all the hard things in this life. 
we can look to Christ as our sure and steady anchor. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The hope set before us is not just it's not just a subjective feeling. It's a settled certainty. It's a confident expectation. It's a present salvation that we know will be fully and finally realized in the life that is to come. But you can know it. You can be for sure now. I mentioned it last week, and I'll mention it again. You can be sure of your salvation. God will hold you firm to the end. He will not let His people go. It's clear throughout the Gospels, throughout the letters of the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, He cares about His people, and He will not let you go. He cares about you. He is an anchor that you can trust. He is a hope that is a settled certainty. He is not going anywhere. He made it clear for Abram in the beginning of the Word of God in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. And then we see all throughout the rest of God's Word as He makes it clear that He has accomplished what He said He will accomplish. And He will continue to accomplish what He said He will finally accomplish. This is who God is. He loves us so much that He sent His Son to be the sacrifice that we couldn't be, to pay the price that we couldn't pay, to be the guy that we couldn't be. We have Christ, and so our hope is in Him. Jesus is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. We are going to celebrate a couple of, of young men this morning by showing that they are professing that they believe that, that they believe that Jesus is their only hope. And so we get to celebrate with them and say, we are, so, we are so glad to be able to share in the fact that two young men have said, yes, I trust that Christ is my Savior, that I know that He is my Lord, that I trust Him, and that He is trustworthy, that I needed Him, that I continue to need Him, and that He's the one who I trust. And so what we celebrate this morning as we go out into baptism here after we sing a couple more songs is that you can know for sure this morning who your hope really is. Are you hoping, are you trusting in yourself, or are you hoping and trusting in the only one who is sure, in the only one who is eternal, in the only thing that will ever last for all time, now and forevermore? You have the opportunity to know that this morning. And you have the opportunity to continue to understand that in your life as a Christian. And that's what we do. We proclaim the gospel. We are connected in Christ as a community who, who tells each other, who reminds each other of who Christ is. And we're on mission to tell other people about that salvation, to see them understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and what that means for them, because it's meant something for us. That's why we exist, and we hope 
We hope this morning that you have that, you have that sure assurance. You, you have Jesus Christ as your anchor. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for how we can trust you because you are trustworthy. God, you have promised and you have fulfilled those promises. I pray that we would be able to see over and over again that you have fulfilled those promises in Christ. That he would be our constant, our sure and steady anchor for our souls, for our whole lives. God, we thank you for him. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for what he means. And we thank you that we can celebrate when people come to know you. How we can see them. How they are dead to sin and how they are raised to new life in Christ. I pray that as we look forward to this baptism, these baptisms this morning, that we would know that you are dependable, that we would know the resurrection power that you showed by being raised from the dead after you died on that cross. That's the same power that we have in us because you put your spirit in us when we come to know you. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would be honored and glorified and all of the rest of what happens in our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.